Good evening. Again, as you may be aware, I am not Josh Petrus, and uh, Josh asked me to fill in for him this evening because at some time in the afternoon, he uh, had something with his eyes, maybe an allergic reaction, and uh, so he is unable to see his notes, and he thought he would be a distraction uh, this evening, which gives me the privilege of being able to come and share one of my favorite passages with you. So we will not be looking at Habakkuk 3, because I did not prepare for Habakkuk 3, but there is a passage that has very much been on my heart for years, and it's one of, uh, that I've been able to teach in the classroom as well from the pulpit before, and it's found in Mark chapter 10. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. This evening we'll be looking at the story of the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, says this. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for the privilege of looking at this passage. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us this evening, that you would help our hearts and minds to focus on your truth, that we might better understand who you are and how we can proclaim your goodness to the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite passages is because it has helped me to understand the gospel much better than I understood it when I was younger. I came to faith, as as many do, in a Christian home as a child, Uh, but I think it was really around uh, when I was 16 that the Lord really grabbed my heart, and uh, a big, big growth spurt began where I... Uh, decided, I was just challenged actually about my faith um, and uh, resulted in me wanting to uh, just tell people about Christ, to everywhere I was, live 100% for Christ. I had kind of been flying below the radar. I even, you could say, had a foot in the world and a foot in the church and someone really challenged me that, that uh, this was not uh, good for me nor was it good for the church. And that either I should go 100% for the Lord or I should get out of the church. Uh, that being halfway in the world was not doing me a service. In fact, it probably brought me more condemnation because I was hearing things that I was then more accountable for. 
No one had ever tried, uh, as a youth, no one had ever tried to really uh, talk me out of the church. But this resulted in me thinking, you know what? What am I doing? Either be 100% or be zero. And so, man, that, that last year of high school for me, when I was turning 17, and uh, I just, uh, uh, my attitudes changed, my friends changed, my language changed, my behavior changed, my desires changed, so that when I got out of high school, all I wanted to do was tell people about Christ. And so I went on a series of mission trips. In fact, I spent three years working for a short-term missions agency and loved, fell in love with telling people about Christ. And I remember beginning, or in those early years, we were trying to come up with strategies on where we could gather people to tell them about Christ. I was on a mission trip one time, and we came up with this strategy that we would pretend we were artists. None of us were artists. And... Uh, so we, uh, we would be painting there on the, uh, on the streets or in a park, and uh, the rest of us would, would closely look in, like surround the, the easel with the, whatever we were painting there. And if people can't see it, they're curious, so they come forward. And then we had a little speech memorized, and, and then we were, were just kind of just making up things. And then as people uh, uh, came, uh, the people who were with us, uh, our evangelistic team, we would come to the outside, sort of a zone defense. And when the name of Jesus was finally mentioned, people would turn around and leave. And there we were with our Bibles and our tracks, and we were ready to talk to them. We had them trapped. We had them, you know, engaged, captive audience. We were ready to bring in the harvest. But some years later, I was reading this text, and it was actually through our pastor's book, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus, that my eyes just started to see there is so much more to evangelism and what I had in mind about sharing about Christ. And this passage confused me initially. Uh, in fact, for quite some time, I was so puzzled that when I looked at this passage, I was convinced that Jesus had made mistakes. Now, I know that Jesus doesn't make mistakes. I know that Jesus is perfect, and he is holy, and he is God. But uh, the way that I had learned evangelism was different from the way that he was evangelizing. And so I started to look at this passage, and as a young believer, I would say I saw four apparent mistakes. I call them apparent because we know they weren't real mistakes. But the first apparent mistake I saw was that Jesus doesn't answer the man's question. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This man asked Jesus about eternal life. What an opportunity. Jesus had no, he didn't have to use an easel. He didn't have to get a crowd around. This man just comes right up to him and asks him about eternal life. But Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? Verse 18. That was confusing to me. And then, second apparent mistake. First, he didn't answer the man's question. Secondly, he brought up the Old Testament. You know the commandments, verse 19. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. This was confusing to me that Jesus would bring up a set of Old Testament commandments. I mean, 
This is the Messiah. He's here. And, and, and to bring up the Old Testament, I mean, I, I, I've read John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus says to, or Jesus, Jesus says to this man, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, most assuredly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's New Testament messianic language. That's what I would expect. But to go back to the commandments, the law, which who can keep that? So Jesus didn't answer the man's question. He, didn't, he brought up the Old Testament. And thirdly, Jesus brought up money. Take a look at verse 21. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, where else is that taught in the Bible? Really? Is this what every believer is supposed to do? Uh, how would this even work? I mean, I come to faith in Christ. I give all my possessions to someone else. Now I'm poor. They're not. Now someone else comes to faith in Christ. Do they give them to me? I, I don't know. I don't understand. This just sounded... Uh, uh, you know, and, and besides that, I mean, in my mind, I thought it was wrong to give indiscriminately. But, uh, you know, it says in the scripture, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. Do, do we just give all of our money away? I, I, again, the young believer, it was confusing to me. Jesus uh, didn't answer the man's question. He brings up the Old Testament. He talks about money. I mean, this is not usually something we do before somebody comes to faith in Christ. But the biggest thing that was confusing to me is that he let him go. Verse 22 says, the man went away grieving. Some versions say sorrowful. Here's a person who's emotionally affected. And Jesus lets him go. Doesn't run after him. Just lets him walk away. And this is the last time in the New Testament that we hear of this man. Matthew's account tells us that he was young. Luke's gospel tells us that he was a ruler. Sorry, Mark's does. Uh, oh no, and all three accounts tell us that he was rich. I, I think his wealth alone in that society would have caused many of us to want to give him special treatment. But the fact that he was a ruler, which meant he was probably a ruler in the synagogue, he was young, he was influential. I just imagine if, if uh, the mayor of Los Angeles or, or if, or if uh, some political figure comes to you and says, hey, uh, can you tell me how I can come to faith in Christ? Can you explain how I might have eternal life? What must I do to be saved? W would we let him go so easily? I mean, this man came to the right person at the right time, at the right place, with the right question, in the right manner. Verse 17 says, he knelt before him. Jesus has just taught on humility, and here comes a rich young ruler who kneels before him, humbly, like a child. And Jesus just lets him go. No wonder the disciples were astonished after this and said in verse 27, who then can be saved? So from a human perspective, from the type of strategies that we have 
that we come up with ourselves on how we should evangelize and share Christ with the world, it appears that Jesus did not do it the way we would do it. But we know that because he is perfect and because we are not perfect, because our concept of evangelism and even salvation is often superficial and based on outward results, and that Jesus makes no mistakes ever, that we must study this passage deeper so that we could see that there are faults here, but they must be on the, the ruler, on the rich young ruler's part. And so we're going to go back through this passage and we're going to look at four fatal flaws of the rich young ruler. Four mistakes the rich young ruler made that really should help us to understand the gospel better, the good news of salvation better. This should teach believers how to avoid a man-centered evangelism and give us a greater appreciation for the gospel. And more importantly, it should teach unbelievers how they might be saved, who it is that can be saved. And so the first fatal flaw of the rich young ruler is this. He did not recognize Jesus as God. He did not recognize Jesus as God. It says in verse 17, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God God alone. The right answer here is for the man to look at him and say, But you are God. In Mark 8, 29, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. That is the anointed one sent of God. You are the holy one. John 4, verse 25, the woman at the well said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John 8, 58 Jesus said to those questioning him, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then that beautiful story in John chapter 20, just just turn with me to, to John's gospel. John's gospel chapter 20. Story of Thomas. I love Thomas. Remember, uh, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus had been crucified, but Jesus had risen from the grave, and he appeared to the 10 disciples. Judas was long gone by then. We don't know where Thomas was, uh, but uh, he wasn't there. Thomas eventually comes back, and the other disciples tell him that Jesus has risen, that he's alive. And if you look at John chapter 20, um, it was, it was Thomas, it says in verse 25, so the other disciples saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came, the doors having been shut, And stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. What does Thomas do? Does he do what he said he would do unless he actually feels it with his own hands? Thomas proclaims immediately. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me and have you believed, blessed are they who do not see and yet they believed. So the problem with the rich young ruler is that he did not recognize Jesus as God. He thought he was merely a good teacher. I had a Muslim man that I was speaking to one time ask me, he said, you're a Christian, right? I said, I am. He said, you believe in Jesus? I said, I do. He says, we also believe in Jesus. I said, you do? He goes, yeah. We just don't believe that he's God. But we believe in Jesus. We believe he was a prophet. And I said, wait a minute. You believe that he was a good teacher, but you don't believe that he was God. He said, that's right. I said, if I was teaching you and told you that I was God, would you think I was a good teacher? How can, if Jesus claimed to be God, and if he wasn't, how could he still be a good teacher in your book? There's no way. I think sometimes we're patronized by people. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But if it's not the Jesus of the Bible, it is not the true Jesus. There are many Jesuses out there. Just think of the most absurd illustration you could. Uh, A soccer player in South America named Jesus. If someone trusts in him for salvation, will they go to heaven? No. No. Because they're worshiping the wrong Jesus. It's the Jesus of the Bible. And Jesus declared himself to be God. And either he is God or he's an idolater because he's guilty of allowing people to worship him. Angels didn't allow themselves to be worshipped. Paul and and Silas didn't allow themselves to be worshipped. Paul and Barnabas. But we have here... Our Lord. And Thomas before him saying, my Lord and my God. Doesn't matter what Jesus you believe in. If he's not the right Jesus, there is no salvation. The Jews believe some that he was a good rabbi. Roman Catholic believes in a different Jesus. Roman Catholics believe in a Jesus who saves by faith plus works. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was just a man. Buddhism says that he was enlightened. Muslims say that Jesus was a prophet like Muhammad. Not so long ago, there was a LA Times article some years ago talking about seminaries reaching out to Muslims. A local seminary in our area, not the master seminary. This is what the article said, quote, One of the nation's leading evangelical Christian seminaries has launched a federally funded project for making peace with Muslims, featuring a proposed code of ethics that rejects offensive statements about each other's faiths, affirms a mutual belief in one God, and pledges not to proselytize 
the $1 million project is being hailed by both sides as a pioneering attempt to ease continuing conflict. You cannot have unity with people who worship two different gods. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you don't believe in the word of God. And there is no way of salvation for you unless you believe that Jesus is God. That was his first mistake, first fatal flaw. But the second fatal flaw of the rich young ruler, he didn't recognize his own sin. He didn't recognize his own sin. Take a look at Mark chapter 10 again, verses 19 through 20. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now, you know, we we can summarize the Ten Commandments and the law with love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that covers the first four, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the last six. But the implication here is that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind all of the time. Not only avoiding sins that we commit, but sins of omission as well, and sins of commission. Things that we could be doing that we're not doing. We are sinners. Jesus lists the commandments out to him in a sense by saying, if you want to go to heaven, be perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we have our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount teaching his disciples about sin, about the need to deal with sin severely. He says in verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus is pointing out the fact here that the same sin that's in the heart of the person who pulls the trigger and murders someone else is in our own hearts when we are angry unjustly with our brothers. And we need to avoid being judgmental or thinking more highly of ourselves, but look at that sin. And how are we going to deal with our sin? Not only did Jesus say that, but see verses 27 and 28. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's easy to be judgmental. And yet the same sin that's there in the adulterer is in the heart of anyone 
who lusts. There are greater consequences for different sins. We know that. But let us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. In fact, right after that, verse 29, Jesus says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better to you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We look at that verse and we think, wow. I, I heard the testimony of a youth pastor who met uh, the parents coming, dropping off their children, and one daughter was very embarrassed about her dad. And he, she said, did you meet my dad? I'm so embarrassed. And he said, well, why? Did you see that he's missing his right hand? And he said, yes, but there are many people with infirmities like that. And, uh, and she said, but the way he lost it is he read that verse in the Bible and he went behind our house and he took an, an ax and he cut off his hand. Which is a terrible application based on a misinterpretation of a text. We know that Jesus was speaking hyperbole here, an exaggerated form to make a point. We know that, that his point here in this passage was not to physically cut off limbs or pluck out eyes. How do we know that? Because the verse itself says, if the right hand causes you to sin, and guess what? The right hand never causes you to sin. It's not like you're in the grocery store and your hand is putting things in your pocket and, and you have no idea about it and somebody confronts you outside and you say, well, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And they look in your pocket and you say, oh, it wasn't me. You can't say if you're sitting in a, a public place and reading the newspaper and your eye is looking at some woman that, that it's your eye's fault. Your eye doesn't cause you to sin. Your hand doesn't cause you to sin. It is your innermost being. It is your sin nature inherited from Adam. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Romans 5 tells us. Matthew 5, 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. Jesus was using this graphic hyperbole to tell his disciples that if you see sin in your life, deal with it drastically. Deal with it severely. Flee from sin. Turn from sin. Repent of sin. So the right response to our Lord when he starts bringing up the commandments would be to say, I'm not good enough. There's nothing that I've done that can atone for, nothing I can do to atone for my sins, and I've sinned against a holy God. Woe is me, for I am a sinner. What hope is there for me? And that's why we need Jesus. Jesus came and lived a perfect life on this earth, and therefore, Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and yet Jesus never sinned, Jesus doesn't have to die. Jesus could could have been alive and never had to experience death, yet he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross according to the Father's will so that he might serve as a substitute 
as an atonement for sins of those who would turn and repent and trust in him and his work alone. I can't do anything to save myself, but Christ has done the work already. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as I hear the word of God and as I hear what Christ has done and as I repent of my sin and turn and say, Lord, I turn to you. Please save me from my sin. I need you. I need your work to atone for my sin. John Calvin said, there is not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sin. We are much worse than we think we are. And this young man didn't recognize Jesus as God. He didn't recognize his own sin. And we see that back in Mark chapter 10. Because right after in verse 20, he said, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Impossible. Impossible. Everything? Never lied? Always honored your father and mother? You know, honoring your father and mother involves your heart. It's not just something external. All of these involve your heart. All of these commandments go deeper than just your external actions. And so we must look at our hearts and we must realize that God is holy and he has declared that he will not tolerate sin. And because he is just, he will judge sin. And therefore, we are in desperate need of someone who can uh, stand in our place and atone for our sin. And Christ is the only one because he's God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he came here to do that work. This is the good news the good news of the gospel. But this man didn't recognize Jesus as God. He didn't recognize his own sin. And he didn't recognize his love for himself. Take a look at verses 21 and 22. I love that Mark records these words in verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him or felt a love for him. Jesus has a great love for those who are lost. And I pray that this church and each one who hears this message has the same love for those who's lost, who are lost. I mean, you know, we look at our lives and sometimes we are delayed and we're waiting for things and we're in line somewhere or we want to be somewhere else or we want to have moved or we want to be out of our job and into another job or we want to be out of this city into another city or whatever it is. We have all these plans And yet God orchestrates things and sometimes chapters of our lives just don't work out the way that we would have written them. And so as we we look at this passage and we think about the fact that Jesus loved him, go back to verse 17. Look at the first words. As he was setting out on a journey. Jesus was getting ready to go for a journey. I mean, can you picture it? You... You, uh, you get the kids in the car, you pack it up, you lock the house, you've got the, the dog sitter all arranged and everything like that, and you're, you're, you put the key in the ignition, you said, oh, kids, you ready to go? <clears throat> and your neighbor knocks on your window, and he says, hey, I was just wondering if you could tell me how I might find eternal life. 
you know? Imagine if that's your dad. You're buckled in the back. He turns off the ignition. He gets out. He opens the door. And he shares the word of God with a man who may genuinely want to know. Why does he do that? Because he has a love for those who are lost. And any delay is not a delay. It's a, it's a providential, God-given opportunity for him to glorify Christ wherever he's at. And that's where we're at. But I, I love it. Mar- Mark puts there, verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. As we look at uh, this text, we see that this rich young ruler um, and his selfish love of money kept him from following Christ wholeheartedly. Our Lord, who sees the heart of every man, looked at him. This young man who had said, all these things I've kept from my youth up. He didn't recognize Jesus as God, didn't recognize his own sin. And yet, when it comes to his selfishness and what his real love was, he was self-centered. And that's why Jesus said to him, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Jesus knew that this man prized something more than God. He loved his money. Jesus had taught in Matthew 16, verse 24. He said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But this rich young ruler was not ready to follow Jesus. Earlier when Jesus mentioned some of the Ten Commandments, if you were to look in Matthew's account, of this same story. Matthew says that Jesus also mentioned, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But this young man did not love others as much as he loved himself, which is why he was unwilling to share his wealth with the poor. And the disciples... They understood what Jesus was saying. Take a look at verse 23. Um, Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said with People, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Behold, we've given up everything. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and the age and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. We think about what our Lord was teaching his disciples and he was saying that Jesus Christ needs to be number one. 
that when you give your life to the Lord, you give it 100%. And that you don't hold back. And that anything you give up, there'll be so many future rewards it won't even seem like it. In fact, I like in in, uh, Romans, Romans chapter 10, Paul picks up on a very similar idea. Romans chapter 10, he says, um, I thought it was, not the verse I was thinking of. Uh, he says, I'm sure it's in Romans 10, where, um, for I'm convinced, for I'm persuaded that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For I'm persuaded that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That is the verse. Think about that verse. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever suffering you're going through today, no one gets to heaven and says, yeah, this is great. I suppose it was worth it. No way. There's no comparison. You don't even compare it. This young man, he didn't, it's Romans 8, Romans 8 verse 18. Romans 8, 18. It's coming back to me. Oh. This man didn't recognize Jesus as God. He didn't recognize his own sin. He didn't recognize his love for himself. Unwilling to give up something that he treasured more than Christ. And let me tell you something. You don't recognize Jesus as God, you cannot be saved. If you don't recognize your own sin, what do you need to be saved from? And if you don't recognize your love for yourself, if Jesus isn't the most important thing to you, person to you in this world, if there's anything that you love and have affection for more than him, I urge you this day, repent and turn to him and be saved. And that was the fourth fatal flaw is this man didn't recognize his need to repent. Didn't recognize Jesus as God, didn't recognize his own sin, didn't recognize his love for self, didn't recognize his need to repent. Verse 22. But at these words he was saddened And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. I want you to take a look at the word grieving here. That word sometimes translated as sorrow or sorrowful. Keep your finger here and turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We find the same word in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10. In uh, in 2 Corinthians there, we find that there had been a, an uprising against Paul that hurt him deeply, and he had written a letter, another letter, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, one that we do not have, one that is sometimes referred to as the sorrowful letter. And in that letter, uh, Paul sent it, 
And after he sent it, before he heard word back of how they received it, he was concerned that he might have been too harsh in the letter. But then later he did receive word back and he heard that they had repented. And he was so overjoyed by that. And he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll I'll begin um, verse Verse eight, he says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there are two types of sorrow our Lord taught. The word of God teaches, Paul clarifying. And this man here, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and to salvation. Worldly sorrow is a path that leads to destruction. What kind of sorrow do you think that this rich young ruler had as he walked away? It says, take a look at the text again. He went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. What's on his mind? What is he grieving about? He's sorrowful because he knows he doesn't want to give up anything and he knows that he doesn't really want to follow Jesus. But it's a worldly sorrow. It's not a godly sorrow. And repentance is essential for salvation. You cannot be saved. You cannot go to heaven unless you repent. To repent, it's a military term. It means to stop and go the other direction. You're headed, we're all born rebels against God, shaking our fist at God. Yet he knows whether we'll repent or whether we'll continue to shake our fist and he knows how many times we'll be shaking our fist until our last breath. And when the gospel was preached, repentance was preached. John the Baptist began his ministry preaching repentance in Matthew 3, 2, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began his preaching ministry with repentance in Matthew 4, verse 17. From this time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter began his preaching ministry preaching repentance in Acts 2, 38. Then Peter said to him, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul begins his preaching ministry with repentance in Acts 26 verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance, Acts 26 20. And Jesus expected the rich young ruler to repent genuinely of his sins. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord 
That is, you've turned from your sin and you say, I no longer want to be the Lord of my life. I no longer want to be the master of my life. I want to follow the one and only true Lord, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, Yahweh, the triune God. If you confess your sins, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, 9, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with a heart that one believes unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto righteousness. There is a gospel out there that is so watered down that doesn't really require you to really believe the Bible that doesn't require you to even repent of sins, it's a different gospel. To repent is to change one's mind or purpose. Charles Spurgeon once said that repentance is to hate sin because it caused the brow of Christ to be girt with a thorn crown and the face of Christ to be dishonored with spit And the hands of Christ to be pierced with a nail. This is repentance. Not because I'm afraid of hell. Not because sin brings pains and penalties with it. But because it made Jesus Christ to suffer for me such pangs unutterable. And so if you're hearing this message and for the first time today. You haven't really recognized that Jesus is God. Who came in the flesh to live a perfect life. And die on the cross to save sinners from their sins. You haven't recognized your own sins. Thinking that you're really not so bad. And comparing yourself to other sinful people. You think that you're all these things I've kept from my youth up. Recognizing your love for self. Because you've got other things in your life. That are much more important to you. Than the word of God and God. Recognizing that you need to repent. You don't see that then this day hear these words of this rich rich young ruler and don't keep on walking and turn around today and fall to your knees and give your life to Jesus Christ. It is the only way to be saved. It is the good news that we have hope. Jesus proclaimed the truth boldly and wholeheartedly and he allowed the Father to do his work Jesus didn't run after him, but let him go the way that he wanted to go. And so we come to the close of our passage, and for those of us who have been saved, it's only by grace that God opens our eyes to see these things. It's not a gimmick. There are no tactics that coerce us into this. These are the very words of God. And Christians, genuine Christians, are people who have done all of these things repented of their sins, given up everything to serve Christ as Lord, turned, confessed of their sins, and believed that he is God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at it this evening. And uh, you are to be praised among, above all others, O Lord, forever and ever. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth, yours is the dominion, Lord, and you exalt your head over all. And we humbly come before you and ask, Lord, that we can proclaim your truth in love, taking the time that is needed to do it, 
that many may come to faith in you. We commit this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.